It's time to start the uh, CARACAST brought to you by the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit at Mayo Clinic. I'm Victor Montori, your host for the CARACAST. And uh, today, my uh, very dear friend, uh, Peter Noseworthy is our guest. Peter is a uh, professor of medicine, a cardiologist, a cardiac electrophysiologist. He um, uh, does ablations to take care of cardiac rhythms that cause uh, disease. Uh, and he's also a federally funded researcher uh, center on improving the care of patients with uh, cardiac uh, arrhythmias. Um, uh, Peter is um, I, uh, one of the pioneers, if I may, of um, using um, artificial intelligence for practical applications, both uh, in the care of patients uh, with uh, cardiac problems, but also in uh, in research itself. So I hope that uh, in the next uh, hour we're going to spend some time uh, figuring out um, uh, figuring out what this is about. Uh, Peter, welcome to the Carecast. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here, Victor. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk to you. Phenomenal. So thanks for the invitation. Delighted. Um, how does one get to be Peter Noseworthy? <laughs> Well, that sounds like a memoir question. I have to admit, at the age of 41, I'm always a little turned off when somebody starts writing memoirs. I feel like I'm just at the beginning of uh, my career and trajectory and just figuring it out. But I'm happy to tell you how I got where I am, even if it means I uh, you know, hit a bunt and I'm on first base, but I'm happy to, to, to take you there. Um, that was a, that was a baseball. I mean, that was I, a baseball analogy. I, I'm, I'm familiar I, with, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't actually know anything about baseball. So that's going to be where my sports analogies end uh, for today. Um, well, as you you said a fair amount in the introduction about who I am and what I do. Um, but at my core, I'm a clinician. I'm a cardiologist. I take care of patients who have problems with heart rhythm uh, disorders. But I like to try to keep a mix in terms of the way I spend my time. And I like to have efforts in research and administration and so forth that all sort of center around the key problem of dealing with patients who have cardiac arrhythmias. And there's some interesting problems there, things like risk of stroke and risk of sudden death and also management of symptoms. So, uh, you know, I've, I've only been at Mayo now for about eight years, but I feel like I've already had the opportunity to wear a lot of different hats and put my energies into various things, but it all kind of comes around uh, built around the idea of trying to figure out what to do with patients with cardiac arrhythmias. So when I first got to Mayo, Mayo was uh, forming this relationship with Optum Labs, and we had access to this large administrative claims data through United Healthcare. And I realized that we had an opportunity to study what was actually happening in real life. And in my field in EP, we were used to studies that maybe had 50 people or 100 people in them, and people were presenting single center experiences. And a lot of what we were doing was based on relatively flimsy evidence compared to other parts of cardiology where we had large randomized clinical trials. And I thought that was an opportunity to use real world data to inform what we do at the, at the point of care. It wasn't something that I was an expert in, but I created uh, or forged some collaborations with people in uh, our Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery and was able to learn a lot about how to apply these things. So, and, so, so, yeah. so, so as you, so let me see if I can unpack that. So, so you show up to the place, you see there's an opportunity. It's something you're not particularly trained or familiar with. You find some people that are, and right. then you, you collaborate with them to make that happen. Uh, 
<laughs> what, that's going to be a, that's going to be a uh, a trend that you're going to you're going to see me talking so, about. So, but... so 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 where 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 did where did you acquire the 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 the, the uh, inclination to do that. I mean, most people would like to stay wherever they're, wherever they personally find uh, comfort, right? So this right. idea of going into a, an area that's new and finding others that can help you, where, where, did you learn well, that in, in kindergarten? A, it seems yeah, like right. everybody learns everything in kindergarten. There was a, uh, there's an opportunity at Mayo uh, to do the scholar program that allowed me to get some formal training and connect to people who were truly experts in the use of big data and uh, leveraging it for um, clinical questions. And I could see that there was an opening uh, uh, being created by this new relationship with United and Optum Labs. So I took that opportunity, applied for that, uh, was able to do some formal training for myself, but also just being able to understand the limitations and strengths of the data and then leverage the existing expertise within the institution. So I think when I first got to Mayo, I was a, a full-time clinician and I enjoyed it, but I had a relatively narrow scope. Every day I went to work, I was wearing lead, I was in a cinder block room doing procedures and I didn't feel connected to this large ecosystem. So I was able to find that there was an opportunity to sort of move outside of my relatively narrow scope and broaden my horizons and access to resources and expertise. And it paid dividends because all of a sudden I had this different perspective. I had days of the week where I was spending in different parts of the institution with entirely different people with non-overlapping expertise. And I found that to be extremely exciting and rewarding. And it's a and it's something that I think I'm trying to reproduce by going out of my comfort zone over and over again. And it's something that I tell other people who we've recruited, junior faculty, to have some uh, comfort in doing, take that risk. Even if you're a little bit outside of your own expertise, that's where the really interesting insights and when things become very exciting. I have to say that uh, the, the that was the most gangster thing I've ever, I, I ever heard you say, you know, <laughs> I, just, I, I wear lead and I go, you yeah. know, it feels, feels like that should be a line on some sort of rap song. Well, uh, nobody's ever, nobody's ever given me that compliment before. If you, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll take so, it. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, so diver variety. Um, so I, I've now noticed that one thing that seems to be driving you is, um, you know, the interest in, in, in taking advantage of opportunities, but also curiosity, but also working with other people from different disciplines. That seems to be, that seems to add a lot to your day. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, I think that burnout is a big problem with clinical medicine and we're all trying to figure out how to to create a career that is satisfying and sustaining and where we feel like we make contributions every day and we go home uh, exhausted in a good way, but recharged and wanting to come back. And I think that it's very easy for people, it's probably true in research, but it's definitely true in clinical practice that you can get in a rut uh, where day after day starts to feel the same and you feel like you're not making progress and you're no longer excited by the questions and you feel like you're, you're in a routine. And we have to fight that, I think, because we have a lot to give as researchers and clinicians if we can show up every day energized and ready to, to give the most of ourselves and, and leverage the resources that we have. So for me, that, that requires having some variety. So I like it when I go to work on Monday and I do procedures and I'm working with my hands and I'm doing something that's very tangible. 
The next day I'm in clinic and I'm sitting across from patients and I'm realizing what is bringing them in and what their concerns are and I'm developing relationships and I'm figuring out what the key questions are that we need to answer. And then the next day I come in and I'm talking to researchers and we're going through data and we're figuring out what we can learn from the available data at our fingertips. And then the next day, maybe we're trying to design uh, healthcare delivery options for our practice from an administrative perspective. Uh, perspective or trying to motivate and build teams of uh, expertise that can uh, pr- that can deliver care more effectively. Yeah, so I no, think if yeah. you can wear each of those hats, I think you can see the same problem from multiple sides and it's much more exciting and much more fulfilling. So, so that that is an orientation towards um, your you know helping feeding yourself and, and keeping you uh, sane, excited, open, generous. Um, is there another is what's the other side of that? In other words, uh, is there value in also what you're able to do when you show up? In other words, the do you feed on impact? I think so. I think you have to remember that it's always centered around that uh, patient that you're trying to take care of. So even though on a day to day or in a week, a week may go by and I may wear many hats it's all funnels down to a relatively small number of patients who I really feel like I have clinical expertise in and whose voice and experience I try to represent in the research and in the way we design our uh, healthcare delivery models and so forth. So it always has to be grounded around the patient. And I think that, um, you know, if a clinician is in the clinical lane and only in that lane. And then there are administrators trying to make uh, impact on the way that clinician exercises his practice or her practice. It doesn't work because the solutions don't don't meet the needs of that patient. Similarly, if there are researchers who are in a silo and are not grounded in clinical practice, they may be answering questions that may not be relevant or may not take into account uh, the insights that a clinician at the at the at the front lines can can pose. So I think it's important for us as clinicians and researchers to make sure that uh, we're we're kind of always stroking in the same direction. All of our efforts are come to come together around a singular purpose. Before we leave the big data space, um, uh, I always I'm always struck by the fact that you know some people are able to see the value in the methods of research that they have. But they're also in a in a very uh, privileged position to also see the potential dangers or challenges associated with using that data. Um, have you had any any aha moments in relation to big data? Where, on the one hand, you've been you know excited about its potential, but on the other hand, quite worried about its, its potential uh, downsides. Yeah, there are many examples, uh, without a doubt. So, you know, I got into this because I was interested in understanding the impact of an abla- of ablation procedures on long-term outcomes, on mortality and quality of life and stroke risk and things like that. And the only way to really get at that question is to randomize patients and then to look at how they, how they do. And whenever you're using an observational data set, uh, trying to overcome the potential for confounding is very challenging to do. And as clinicians, we're very good at picking up the patients who are going to do well with an ablation procedure. And even though if we match or we do a propensity score on, we often use 90 variables or even more to try to minimize that confounding, there's a certain intangible 
uh, gestalt that a clinician can get across the table or across, from the foot of the bed looking at a patient. And it's very hard to, to understand how to, to completely eliminate that risk. So the other thing we have with big data is we can we can have very small effect estimates that are highly statistically significant. So we don't want to be we don't want to look at statistical significance as our barometer for whether something is is valuable or not. We have to look at whether these are clinically meaningful impacts and whether we have confidence in the data. So we've developed a, a research program around taking clinical trial data and trying to replicate it in in observational data and then having this sort of reciprocal learning from what are the limitations and advantages of a clinical trial versus observational data. Um, and those two things can go together very nicely. So there may often with the trial, it may not be particularly generalizable to real world practice. The complexities of everyday practice are not reflected in a very cherry-picked prospective clinical trial that's performed at very high volume centers. So with the real real life data, we get a real a sense of generalizability, but we have to we have to understand that there's a potential for confounding and so forth. Do you but, so so yeah. you don't you don't necessarily have to fall on the side of preferring uh, chance, like in the randomized trial, to choice, like in an observational study in terms of allocating of treatments, uh, but you actually feel that it, these are complementary sources of evidence to try to uh, get closer and closer, if not to truth, at least to clarity. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And that's exactly what we tried to do. You know, I would say uh, one of many investigators on our big uh, randomized prospective clinical trial for catheter ablation called Cabana. And, you know, it had a budget of, I think, around $60 million. It was enrolled over nine years, international trial from dozens of countries. But it only enrolled uh, 2,000 patients randomized to ablation or, uh, uh, or medical therapy. But over the same time of that trial, there were hundreds of thousands of patients who underwent ablation. So to to waste all of that observational data is a shame, but also to take that observational data and not put it in the context of what we can learn from random treatment allocation is also a shame. So I think we have to put those two things in, in context of each other and use them as complements. Because we have the, the large data, it would be a shame to not do the trials, right? So it, it's, yeah. uh, it has both. Um, just for those who are not uh, medically trained in our, in our, in our conversation, do you have a, a, a layperson summary of what ablation is? Oh, ablation. So this is a, a invasive procedure that is done to control a cardiac arrhythmia of one type or, or another. So often these arrhythmias arise when there's some sort of abnormal electrical circuit in the heart. And just like any other electrical circuit, if you can break it, if you can identify the loop, find a vulnerable part within that circuit and break it, you can break the arrhythmia. So we use various energy techniques delivered through catheters, often through vascular access into the heart uh, to cauterize essentially, either by heating or freezing the tissue and eliminating those abnormal circuits. So that's, you know, we talk about big data and then sometimes, sometimes I come to work and I'm dealing with uh, N of one, you know, one circuit within one heart and in a very sort of tangible way. And I, I enjoy that. Spectrum. That is, uh, that is phenomenal. So, how how do you how do you go from big data to AI? Well, uh, so I think I realized that there's great power in data uh, through my work in Optum Labs, and that was very fulfilling. But then we started asking over and over again similar comparative effectiveness questions. Uh, but I realized that there's a lot of richness of clinical data beyond simply outcomes, claims, billing codes, things that can be extracted for the, from the electronic health record. And it was actually a fortuitous turn of events that brought me to AI. 
my chairman, Paul Friedman, uh, asked me to run our ECG and physiologic monitoring lab, which is a part of our practice that deals with reading ECGs. An ECG is that electrical test where you put on the probes and you get a little um, electrical readout of heart rhythm. And to be frank, I wasn't terribly enthusiastic about taking over that role. It felt like a a very mundane part of our practice. The ECG lab had been around for decades. It hadn't changed much. We were just reading the studies for the clinical practice. And I thought it would be a distraction from my research and clinical practice. But he oh, hinted- hold on, hold on. Hold on. So, 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 so your boss says, go run this thing. It feels like an administrative job on a mundane yeah. part of your practice. So you say no, right? So I said, give me a day to think about it. And he and I think he planted the seed, uh, which was, uh, if you assume this role, you'll have access to a whole new set of data. And in the current environment, we can leverage that data to answer all kinds of interesting questions. So at Mayo Clinic, everything is centralized, and many healthcare institutions are like this, but particularly Mayo Clinic. So we read all of the ECG data for all of Mayo Clinic, which is you know, somewhere between 250,000 and 400,000 ECGs a year. And we've archived all those as digital files. And as, of course, they're linked to our electronic health record. And they've been sitting there basically untapped uh, for decades now. But in parallel with this, Paul Friedman had this idea of building out a core within cardiology of expertise in data science, artificial intelligence. And I saw this as a potential sandbox to play with these technologies or sort of an incubator for the application of AI to clinical medicine. And that was really how we got into this. So we uh, uh, started to do some studies on that incredible trove of data that was at our fingertips and a whole world opened up. And to be frank, this is now what I'm spending most of my time when I'm not mucking around in somebody's heart trying to find one of those circuits. This is what I'm doing. And it's, and it's I been- I hope you don't describe the procedures to patients as much. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a more technical word, but I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so this, this AI opportunity now comes up um, not because you, you sought it, but because you were needed in a sort of leadership position and you were able to see behind that. Well, at least your leader was able to convince you that there was something there for you and you you bought it. Yeah, exactly. But it's just like, um, you know, there's sort of like a bit of an opening, a bit of an opportunity. It's a little bit similar to the way I felt when I saw that relationship with Optum Labs and access to data and how I could move out of my comfort zone and EP into big data. This was another, another pivot in a whole nother world. So if when, I knew... When, when... When people get started in science or in, in their careers or even in medicine, they they often get the impression that the line towards uh, their realization is going to be a straight line. Um, you're describing a, 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 a story of opportunities that you were able to recognize, but seem not to have been in your plans. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, if you went back three years ago, I really had no idea what AI was, and I had no particular ambition to start to learn it or to apply it to medicine. But uh, it, it, you know, part of being a uh, a part of a rich ecosystem like we have at Mayo Clinic and many other academic institutions are these the breadth of talent and skill set. And if you can tap into that, uh, it it can be phenomenally exciting. So maybe I'll 
can I take you through maybe our first project in well, AI? So before, for before you do that, now you boasted that three years ago you had no idea what AI was. Well, now you can tell us what AI is. Right. Well, uh, what do you want me? How do you want me to describe uh, this? I could describe how how we're applying it, the kinds of insights we're learning. What we're is saying, it? Well, well, yeah, what, what, what is it? When people say, oh, I, AI, well, what are they talking about? Yeah, well, at its, at its core, it's data science, but it's just, it's uh, applied with, uh, there, there are really, uh, there are a couple of factors that made AI, uh, that have facilitated the explosion of AI and its application in medicine and other modalities. Because the, the core concepts have been around since the 1970s. And the idea of machine learning and unsupervised learning and uh, taking a data set, uh, pairing it with an outcome, training a data, training a, a computer system to pick up patterns in the data and predict an outcome. That's not a new idea, but now we have much better data at our at our fingertips. We have it archived in ways that are usable, and we now have the computer uh, capabilities to run increasingly complex models, which are now finally being able to deliver uh, uh, results that are useful at the point of care. So, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Yeah. We, yeah, an ECG is a relatively straightforward electrical recording of the heart, and it's a hundred-year-old technology. Eindhoven, uh, you know, put it. You put uh, your foot in a bucket of salt and made an inscription of of the electrical activity in the heart. Won the Nobel Prize, but it really hadn't changed much for a long period of time. And uh, if we use what's called a convolutional neural network, which is a way of taking that signal, breaking it down into convolutions or little uh, features of the signal, they may be. Uh, curves and slopes and inflection points and these things that are not necessarily recognizable to the human eye as salient features but if that's repeated hundreds of thousands of times into each of these features and then a computer system learns the relationship between each of those features and is trying to learn the relationship between each of those features in each other and then an outcome of interest it can start to see patterns that are very informative it's similar to the technology that's used in facial recognition or any kind of uh, learning of various images. And we're all convinced that that power when our iPhone sorts our photos into various family members. And regardless of the view, the lighting, it can be black and white, you can be wearing a Halloween costume, it can still tell Victor from Claudia, from you know Alonso very well. And uh, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really powerful technology. So that same technology applied to ECG, we can learn all kinds of features that even a, a very skilled cardiologist cannot discern. Uh, based on the ECG. So we typically use the ECG to say, what is the heart rhythm? Are they a normal rhythm or something else? But we had this idea that maybe we could use it to determine heart function. So we paired our ECG database with our ECHO database. ECHO is a way, an ultrasound test of the heart to look at heart function. And we trained a convolutional neural network to look at the squiggly lines and predict whether the heart was likely to be weak or not. And to our somewhat surprise, it performed exceptionally well. So like any diagnostic test, we measure the area under the receiver operating curve. And if it's a guess, we get an AUC of 0.5, like a coin flip, 50% of the time, it'll say one versus the other. If it was perfect, it'd be 1.0, or it would always get it right. This test would get it right, this convolutional neural network on the ECG, 
um, with an AUC of 0.93. So for comparison, tests that we use every day in routine practice, like a pap smear or a mammogram, or a, a, might have an AUC of 0.7 to about 0.8. So we can beat uh, things that we've already accepted into our practice just by taking an old technology, an ECG, applying a new form of data science and breathing sort of new light into the into the and, technology. And do you know how the do you know how this network uh, figures that out? That's a uh, area of uh, investigation, and it's very interesting to try to do that. It, people often complain about AI because it's a bit of a black box. We basically, it spits out a number between zero and one, and we have to find a cut point and then turn it into a binary result and action, uh, take some action on it. But trying to see in that black box is a big challenge. So we can do things like, I'll go into some of these details just for fun, but you can do a saliency map where you look at an ECG and it'll highlight areas that the model is paying particular attention to. You could take an ECG and you could blind the model to various parts of the ECG and see when it can no longer recognize it. So it's sort of a deductive approach. You can blind it to various features that you might think are important and see how it performs. And then you can even use another model to instead of to basically turn it upside down. And one of our data scientists has worked on this as part of his PhD, but it's called this generative adversarial network where you have a have one network that instead of creating the output, it actually creates a fake ECG. And then the other network looks at the fake ECG and tries to interpret it. And as soon as one network can fool the other, you've created an output or an ECG that the model can't tell from real from fake. And if you're training it to be of, a, of, the, of the outcome of interest, it basically creates like a caricature of an ECG that represents the disease state of, of interest. So people have done this for, uh, you know, you might have a model that says, is this a horse or a zebra? And then if you make one of these generative adversarial networks, you can create a caricature of a zebra. And it's interesting. It doesn't really look like a zebra. What it looks like is a mess of manes and stripes and a bit of the fence post at the zoo and, you know, these all these things. But you would look at it, any human would look at it and say, well, that's sort of a, a, a cubist zebra. But to the model, that really looks like looks very convincingly like a zebra. So we create these ECGs that look sort of funny, but they have exaggerated features that might give us some clue as to what they're looking at. As you were coming into the field, was there a moment when you when you when you went, "Oh my God, this is good stuff"? Oh yeah, sure, sure. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one little anecdote that I thought was especially interesting. When we uh, developed this model that performed so well for detection of low ejection fraction with AUC of 0.93, that was based only on the ECG. And we thought, well, we could very easily just augment the model by giving it a couple of clinical data points that are readily available. And we started by just putting the age and the sex into the model. And we thought if it went from 0.93 to 0.98, we're done. We're going to have a great model. But in fact, it didn't improve the model performance at all to several decimal points. And we looked at each other and thought, what's, what's going on here? But the data scientists knew right away the answer. And they said the model already knows the age and the sex looking at the ECG. That's the only explanation for why giving it additional information doesn't inform it. So we then thought, well, that would be amazing because really we don't think we have any way to tell age and sex just based on the electrical inscription of the heart rhythm. 
But in fact, then we train models to pick up age and sex, and it and it performs exceptionally well. And that actually was the explanation. We're giving the model no new information by saying age and sex. So now we have a separate model that can tell the sex of an individual just based on their ECG with an AUC of 0.98 or 0.97. You know, that's just about as good as a human looking across a room at another person. It's really exceptionally uh, easy for the model to tell sex on the ECG. And, uh, you know, I read ECGs for a living and my colleagues do. I can't do that. So this is an example where the AI can see beyond human capability. And I, even though we don't need an ECG to tell the sex of a patient, it's proof that there's informa information there that's hidden in plain sight. We can't see it as, as clinicians, but it's there. And it tells us that we might as well start looking for medically interesting patterns in this data, because there's likely all kinds of rich clinically informative data hidden there uh, within the ECG. So that's catalyzed a whole number of projects within our Somebody um, for the first time looked in, in a microscope and saw a bacteria and realized that was causing disease or uh, put on a, a couple of goggles to look at infrared or ultraviolet light and saw that there was more light than one could see. I mean, yes. it feels in your description that we're looking at a new at a new way of enhancing our, our perceptions, enhancing our senses. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, people are uncomfortable with this uh, as a black box because we don't always know what we're looking at. But there are so many examples of that. And this is a tool. We have to learn the limitations of it, the downfalls, and apply it carefully and judiciously. But uh, I, we shouldn't throw this out just because we don't necessarily always understand. And there's some really fun examples early on. We we started, because we had now a measure of ECG age, we started to look through all of our patients and we found some outliers. And one of my colleagues, Suraj Kappa, uh, I share an office on the clinical side with him, was looking at a case. The patient looked older than his chronological age. He was aging appropriately. And then overnight, he became about 20 years younger. So he delved into the into the tri, into the um, clinical record to say what was going on in this patient. And on that day that he appeared to get younger based on his ECG, he had actually received a heart transplant and received a heart from a younger patient. And it was just some of those, you know, it's N of one, it's anecdotal, but it kind of gives you goosebumps and it's and it's proof of this concept that there's stuff uh, there. And since then, I can't tell you how many uh, times I've gone through and used this data and saw, seen these sorts of really fascinating clinical insights that we wouldn't have had if we didn't have the ability to apply these technologies. So I have to ask you the same question I asked you with big data. And so now that you've sort of felt its power, yeah, uh, yeah. What, 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 are, what, what are the caveats? What are the, what are the, 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 the difficulties that you see uh, in, in AI? What, what, what makes you afraid? Well, there are, when we learn from our past uh, experience and our practice patterns and the outcomes that are uh, in, the, in our recent history, and then we train models to predict that, we have to be aware that there are inequities in the way we practice medicine. There are disparities in outcomes. There are biases that are sort of baked in institutionally and into these sorts of things. And we don't want to simply create systems that promote and potentiate that kind of uh, those sort of fundamental problems of our existing healthcare system, especially if we don't understand the models and then they become baked into our uh, practice and it sort of ensures 
uh, potentiation and, and, and promotes these kinds of inequities. So we have to be very, very cautious. So, you know, for example, if if we're not as good at diagnosing low ejection fraction or heart failure in one group of patients, but we create a model that's based on our historical data, then as we apply that model, maybe we'll continue to miss those patients and the, that underserved or uh, you know vulnerable population will continue to, to suffer uh, the, those sorts of consequences. So we have to test these things rigorously in uh, ex uh, externally validated uh, populations. We need to do subgroup analyses. We need to understand uh, where these models work and where they don't. And we've been doing a lot, trying to do a lot of that work um, before we uh, deploy these models clinically. The, um, which brings us to values, right? Because uh, uh, you wouldn't be worried about those things if, um, if you were not, for instance, interested in Injustice, and uh, um, what would you think? Uh, what would you say is has been a, a primary value driving uh, driving your work thus far? Well, I think that I, I like the fact that every day that I go to work, I have I wear a slightly different hat, and I like the fact that I can then test what we're doing uh, in one realm. Uh, across discipline or across uh, from a different perspective. So when uh, on a Thursday, if I'm working with these AI algorithms and we're trying to figure out how to apply them, by the next Tuesday, when I'm looking a patient in the eye in the clinic, I can think about does deploying this algorithm help this individual patient and does it make sense? And is it bringing value to this interaction or is it a distraction or is it, does it open up some sort of risk for this individual patient? So there's sort of a, a baked into this is a bit of a, a reality check uh, each 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 day. So I I think having an opportunity to look a patient in the eye, have that conversation, and doing that regularly brings you back to the patient. I think that's that's sort of a critical thing. You know, um, Mayo Clinic broadly always talks about the needs of the patient. And they talk about research as addressing the unmet needs of the patient. And I think that's a that's a perspective that most Mayo Clinic uh, uh, clinicians and researchers sort of live by. And it's a very simple way of articulating the fact that fundamentally we're here to take care of patients and everything we do has to come back to that. And we have to have confidence that uh, we're actually doing this for the good of our you know, our, our research unit, as you know, has three values, you know, patient-centeredness, integrity, and generosity. Um, uh, from what you just said now, it sounds like the patient-centeredness will be the thing of the three values that will be closer to you. Am I interpreting that correctly? Well, I think as a clinician, that really is the, the fundamental uh, orientation I have to my daily work and my goals in life. Um. Of course, integrity is absolutely essential, and that goes to things like you know if we develop a model and it and it ends up wreaking ha uh, havoc on the way we apply medicine, that's a major problem. If there's problems with integrity of our application of big data to clinical practice, or we find some spurious association that we start acting on, uh, that's an in incredible disservice. And I actually like the idea of generosity as well. And I think that that's a, a fundamental value, I think, for building teams of people uh, who work together 
uh, for growing a, um, uh, a research team and so forth. So I think that when I think about my mentors over the years, probably the the most important attribute, in my opinion, of a of a good mentor is generosity. And I can think of many examples, and you know, even the example of my chair asking me to take over this role in the ECG lab uh, is an act of generosity uh, in a in a way, sharing this uh, this access to data, this opening up an entirely new line of investigation. And I think I have to be aware of that sort of generosity people have offered to me, and I try to offer it to junior faculty, collaborators, and so forth that I've worked with. And and there are many aspects to that. So if you if you share opportunities, if you can share responsibility, that's important. It's not just, and if you can share the credit, uh, then I think you create an environment where things are synergistic. And there's more work to be done than ind one individual can do. But if you can share that responsibility, hold people accountable um, in sort of a, a generous way where they can then uh, benefit from it, you can leverage uh, your your work to be much more powerful and impactful. So we got a question from uh, one of our uh, audience members here, and was that was wondering about the, how you see competition. So uh, some people see competition as a way of keeping your axe sharpened and uh, you know trying to beat the next guy to the next big idea and so forth, and uh, some see competition uh, as uh, in inhibiting or impairing the kind of collaboration you've been speaking of um where, where do you where do you land um i don't i don't particularly feel a lot of competition but part of the reason is the kinds of collaborations i think that i've formed and i think it's easiest for us to think about collaborating with people who are very near to what we're doing so people with the same expertise the same worldview the same uh experience and the same skill set and there you have two people and, and it would be very easy for that to become competitive but i think if you form teams of people with completely non-overlapping expertise with uh very different worldviews, then these are not people you're in any way competing with uh but you have a true collaborative uh a spirit and you can feel very confident in what you bring to the table and you can feel confident that uh that 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 adds value to the interaction so my world is full of people who have much more expertise than me in almost everything that we're doing but i know what i have and that's the clinical perspective the clinical experience um and sort of the ability to triangulate these different uh, perspectives and leverage our, our efforts uh, to the good of patients. So that's a pretty narrow uh, contribution to that collaboration, but it, it means that we're not, in, we're not in opposition and we're not uh, competitive. Now, if yeah. you look around the country, there may be other groups that are doing similar things and I might have a, a inkling of competition with them, but that's just motivating and, and that's sort of fun. I don't, yeah. I don't see that. Yeah, I agree with you. I wouldn't work with other cardiologists. Um, <laughs> Um, so on that note, uh, what are what, what are your favorite collaborations? Well, I think I've outlined a few of them. Uh, I love. I think I love to collaborate. Um, I, I, there are people within the Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery that I've learned an enormous amount from uh, with the big data analytics, and uh, they also have expertise in how to how to translate our practices 
to uh, or our, our learnings to clinical practice. So uh, I've done a lot of work with Xiao Shi Yao, um, and I've learned a lot from uh, her and her perspectives. Uh, Nile Shah has has a lot of um, uh, ex experience in how to get these things into practice and sort of the regulatory aspects. And, uh, and that's been, I've learned a lot from that. And then the data scientists who uh, I have almost nothing in common with in terms of our training, but we have everything in common in terms of our ambition to unlock these hidden patterns in the ECG. Uh, that's been a, a phenomenally exciting. What, what the kinds of, of things. What is a data scientist? You'll have to invite a data scientist on to tell <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> I don't, I feel like I could be uh, if I misspeak. I, I don't want to be uh, quoted amongst them, but there are people who who understand how to how to leverage technologies to unlock the patterns and insights uh, within data, and uh, and that can be through various techniques. But that's where the magic happens. Yeah, I, I just heard the other day uh, um, uh, a guy at uh, Google Health was talking about how they're they're swimming in, you know, just massive amount of data that we all um, kindly, naively, you choose your word, uh, <laughs> give to them in the process of using their free uh, tools. And, um, and he was saying that the biggest challenge that they have in using data, particularly related to health, is, is the ability to ask questions. Uh, because the data is there, like you said, like it was the, with this, with the squiggly lines of the ECG were sitting there for decades. Um, mm -hmm. You say it was untapped. And so uh, here they have massive amount of data that might have insights related to health and a lot of data scientists that could actually unlock those insights. But their biggest limitation appears to be the ability to be able to ask the right questions in ways that the answers will have meaning. In other words, to convert the data into evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it se seems to me that you play a, a, a significant role in in asking those questions. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. So d data on its own is not particularly valuable, and it's the data scientists can turn uh, data into into information, you know, that's informative, and then you can turn information into evidence, and you can turn evidence into knowledge, and knowledge into you know true insights at the point of care. And I think it's important that we that we uh, that we harvest all that information that's at our fingertips. And we don't stop at turning data into information, but we bring it all the way into really informative insights that are valuable to our patients. That's really, a, a clinician has a role in that. Um, and there are many stops along the way in the evolution of uh, turning data into, into really important insights. And ultimately, it has to be tested in trials. We have to hold it to the same standard that we hold almost any new therapeutic or drug or diagnostic or device. We have to hold our data insights to that same sort of uh, uh, standard. You, 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 there's another thread going through your work. Um, uh, in addition to take advantage of opportunity and be curious and be collaborative with uh, folks from multiple disciplines and be ready to learn new skills. And, and that is uh, something you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the Cabana trial, how it was a multi-million dollar investment in uh, causal inference mm -hmm. and, uh, and that you, how you run what 
I would assume was a much uh, less expensive effort in using data that had already been collected as a matter of uh, taking care of patients and uh, and, and building them, I guess. Um, um, there's a recycling nature to your work, isn't it? Uh, a, an, an element that adds sustainability to research. Yeah, I like that formulation a lot. I actually haven't thought of it in that, in that term exactly, but you're right. I think that if we go back to that Cabana example, the Cabana trial cost tens of millions of dollars and it took about a decade. And if you think about all the study coordinators across all the sites, all the investigators, all the follow-up, all the research forms that got generated, all the IRBs, just the incredible amount of work to study those 2,000 patients. And then uh, with relatively small amount of investment, we had an R21 uh, grant from the NHLBI for a couple hundred thousand dollars. We were able to extend our learning from the Cabana trial, in my opinion, by using that available data. And it's much more efficient. Now that we're talking about AI and trying to test those sorts of applications prospectively, we're developing a whole set of prospective, pragmatic practice embedded and EHR enabled clinical trials that uh, I think will extend what we've learned from the AI and test it in a rigorous way. So I told you about how we developed the algorithm to detect low ejection fraction from the ECG, but stopping there is just a curiosity or it's information or it's a single research finding, but it's not necessarily clear how to apply that to clinical practice. So we did a prospective cluster randomized trial, which we called EGLE, and it's a cute name for like uh, ECG AI guided detection of low ejection fraction in practice. So we created a IT infrastructure to take all ECGs that were being done for any reason and silently in the background, run this AI on all of the ECGs that were done. And then we reported it to frontline clinicians across the upper Midwest health system, including in Wisconsin and uh, rural sites in Minnesota, to primary care doctors, gave them the result, along with a, a, a recommendation either to consider getting an echocardiogram or not. And then we just let it go in a very pragmatic, hands-off way, and it was up to the clinicians and the patients to decide whether they wanted to get the echo based on that new piece of data. And then we looked at, were we able to diagnose more people with previously unrecognized low ejection fraction out in the community in practices across the upper Midwest? And we just finished that study. I just uh, presented it at the American Heart Association. The paper is now under review, but we were actually able to demonstrate that we were able to increase the diagnosis of previously unrecognized low ejection fraction just by taking this AI, running it through our electronic health record, making the results available along with a recommendation at the point of care, and essentially execute a large prospective randomized uh, clinical trial to do that. And we, we enrolled uh, you know, several hundred clinicians as the, uh, as the subjects in the study, and uh, performed the AI on over 22,000 patients uh, over a relatively short period of time, relatively inexpensive, certainly if you think about in comparison to other prospective randomized trials. And it only took us about eight months between conception, execution, completion, and submission of the paper. So we accelerate that timeline. We make it much more pragmatic. It's more generalizable because it's taking advantage of real world practice. And it's much less expensive.
you know, now you need to figure out if it is the same to have, um, in other words, you have to figure out if the patients are better off because of this uh, uh, uncovering of their problem, right? Because they may represent a population that is different from the population in which the problem is diagnosed uh, without the assistance of the AI or not. Right, right. Yeah, and there are many layers to that. So there are uh, subsequent studies as a part of EGLE that we're actually currently doing. So we did look at whether or not they were treated appropriately with medications that seemed to, and 97% of patients who were found to have low ejection fraction in our study were, were started on either an ACE inhibitor or a beta blocker, which is the guideline recommended treatment. Now, we don't know. These may be very low risk patients. We don't know their risk of progression. We have to look at long-term outcomes. We have to look at things like there are certainly people who we flagged as potentially having low ejection fraction, but who had a normal EF during the study. And what, what do we do with those patients? Do they need, um, you know, in the, in the primary study, we found that those people were four or five times more likely to develop low ejection fraction over time. So we have to learn if that uh, bears out to be true in practice. And do we need to then create some sort of surveillance infrastructure for looking for incident low ejection fraction? We need to understand the outcomes. There's still a lot of work to be done. But I think what we're able to show is a couple of things. One, we can embed AI in clinical practice by leveraging the electronic health record. We can uh, use that to the benefit of early diagnosis of previously unrecognized but medically important disease like heart failure and low ejection fraction. We can do it at relatively low cost, and we can do it in a way that we think is minimally disruptive. And paired with this, uh, we're doing a qualitative assessment of the patient experience with the algorithm as well as the clinician experience. And it's possible the clinicians on the on this uh, listening to this podcast will be well aware that there's nothing more annoying than the constant alerts that come across the dashboard as we're seeing patients and caring for them and these sort of computers telling us what to do. And one more alert could be overwhelming. It can contribute to burnout. And if it's not actually beneficial to you and your patients, eventually it will be it'll be rejected. And so we have to think about yeah, yeah, I'm also concerned about the patients who all of a sudden you know, are minding your own business, doing their thing, and then they get this alert that say they have heart failure. Right. It seems like, a, seems like a pretty loaded thing to be told. And then if you were to do a, a quick search about the term and, and you don't know uh, you don't know necessarily yeah. about severity, you may find that, oh, it says that 50% of people like me are going to be dead in two years. Well, thank you very much, algorithm. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. But uh, that's part of the reason that the consented subjects in our trial were actually the clinicians, not the patients. So the, the patients didn't get these results. The, the clinicians got the results. And it was up to the clinician to put that into clinical context and figure out whether it was worth looking for low ejection fraction in that patient. So let me give you two examples. There may be a patient who uh, is dealing with end-stage metastatic cancer who's getting uh, potentially cardiotoxic uh, doses of chemotherapy and who's getting supportive care or something like that. In that patient, it, it may be very plausible that the algorithm picked up low ejection fraction, but it may not impact the uh, trajectory of that patient's uh, healthcare. And the clinician can look at that, put it in context and say, I'm going to leave, leave that to the side and we're going to deal with the issues at hand. Whereas there may be a stoic uh, Minnesota farmer who is, uh, has been noticing that he's becoming increasingly short of breath, uh, working uh, hard, but has not brought it up. 
is not complaining to his doctor, but in only a very subtle way. And in this situation, the alert that this patient may have a low ejection fraction may just cause that clinician to ask a couple more questions, uncover this sort of previously unrecognized uh, decline in functional capacity or something for that individual patient and warrant an echocardiogram. So even though uh, the AI runs as a machine in the background, it's man and machine coming together for the benefit of the patient where it really brings value. So that's why we, we give the result to a clinician who can put it into context in an intelligent and patient-centered way. Yeah, it, um, uh, one looks at the early days of the Mayo Clinic and uh, as the Mayo brothers were recruiting colleagues, you know, all of a sudden, you know, colleagues have been were coming in trained, for instance, again, in the use of the microscope and all of a sudden, you know, we need to start analyzing urine and see if that's going right. to give us insight as to what our patients have and why would urine tell us that? And all of a sudden, urine becomes a analysis of urine becomes a black box until we start understanding exactly how it helps us. But the use of it to help was uh, already quite in place. And mm -hmm. in Peru, there is a um, there is a story uh, in Peru where I was born. There's a story of um, of Dr. Barton who had come from I think it was France with the ability to, to use a microscope to under, and uh, put it to use to understand that uh, uh, Oroya fever was caused by uh, bacteria. And he, you know, that we call it Bartonella because of Alberto Barton. And, um, but nobody would believe him. And, yeah. um, and so he left medicine. He left uh, medicine and uh, used his knowledge of, uh, of uh, microbiology and pasteurization to develop the first uh, soft drink uh, in Peru that was fully pasteurized and it was called pasteurina, which lasted long enough for me to actually have uh, tried it. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, this, this series is about care that fits. It's about making healthcare and, and the care of patients fit in the, in the complicated lives uh, uh, that people have. Do you see a role for the kinds of technologies that you're working with now to facilitate, um, to, to make care fit in the lives of patients? Yes. Um, there are, you know, I could go through some specific examples. Um, one is just, is, is to take this, these sorts of insights, actually apply them to clinical practice and try to do that in a way that uh, is to the benefit of patients. Another is to leverage these technologies in novel ways in how we uh, study various interventions. The follow-up study to Eagle is called Beagle, and it's a uh, uh, it's using a different algorithm to look for uh, atrial fibrillation. And like low ejection fraction, this is a problem that can lurk. It can be asymptomatic, but we have a similar algorithm to run on the ECG that we think might indicate an individual's likelihood of having atrial fibrillation. And the, the main problem there is that if you have atrial fibrillation, you're at risk of stroke. And if you don't know you have atrial fibrillation, you don't know you're at risk of stroke. So some portion of people who suffer a stroke are found after the stroke to have AFib. If you have AFib, you could anticoagulate, you could prevent that stroke, but making that diagnosis is key. And since it's fleeting and often asymptomatic, there's a lot of AFib out there in the population that is missed. And I, as somebody who takes care of these patients, I've always thought, how do we go out there and find these asymptomatic episodes? So we have this algorithm now that can run on an ECG and identify patients at risk. 
And then there are separate algorithms that can scour a medical record and say, did we already know that this patient had atrial fibrillation? And then ask other questions like, if we were to find that they have atrial fibrillation, do they have enough other risk factors that they'd be at sufficient risk of stroke that we'd actually want to treat them with an anticoagulant? So we can use all this AI, natural language processing, uh, and leveraging the data that's available to us in the background to look at the entire ecosystem of Mayo Clinic patients, hundreds of thousands of people at once, if not millions, to find the people who we think are out there with an unrecognized lurking risk of stroke related to atrial fibrillation. So we just started this study a couple of weeks ago. We've now enrolled about 150 patients. We identify them and without even bringing them into the hospital or bringing them into a clinic, without having to have a face-to-face -face conversation, we reach out to them through electronic means, through the patient portal. And we say, we think you might be eligible for a clinical trial. Would you be interested in participating? They can enroll, they can learn about the study remotely from the comfort of their home, regardless of where they live. And then we're just sending them in the mail a heart monitor that they can wear and look for this uh, arrhythmia. And over the, uh, the first week that we started enrolling, we had only enrolled about a dozen patients. We picked up two patients with previously unrecognized atrial fibrillation without having them to ever even come into Mayo Clinic uh, to talk to anybody in person. So in that sense, we're taking these technologies to patients where they are in a way that they can receive this care within their uh, home environment at at, at uh, their leisure and their convenience. Um, they're not coming in, they're not parking the car, they're not spending money, they're not taking a day out of work. We're really trying to reach them where they are and uh, uh, study them with a trial, but also offer them technologies that we think might be to the, the betterment of their health. So uh, that's an example where we can leverage these technologies to meet patients where they are. And, and you just gave an example of a chronic condition. And, and I've always believed that in order for, uh, for that to work out, you have to develop uh, relationships with patients, personal relationships with patients. Um, convenience in this fashion seems to put a distance uh, potentially between patients and clinicians. Is that a concern? Yeah, that's a, that's very astute. And, you know, you've made this point before, but I think what we're doing in this case, these are Mayo Clinic patients. Even though we're not talking to them, we have a relationship with them or they have a relationship with us as a health ecosystem. And they've put their trust in us by creating a portal account, by sharing their data with us, by having that open line of communication. So in that case, we're using technology to reach them and we're using our existing trust and goodwill that they have for us and us for them to, to leverage that kind of technology. So um, it it reminds us that we have to protect that trust and that integrity to get back to one of your key uh, uh, guiding principles. Because if we lose that, uh, we lose the ability to reach patients in novel uh, and um, a technology-enabled ways. Well, during our conversation, your pager has gone off several times, and I wish you had a <laughs> some sort of algorithm to know which of those actually required you to pick it up. I know, yet. I'm getting increasingly nervous. <laughs> yeah, interrupt the thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come to an, we're coming to an end, uh, Peter, and it's been absolutely, I think, n not only very informative, but uh, a joy to... 
um, to review um, your extremely brief uh, and early account of your career. Um, and uh, obviously uh, the adventure continues and we would love to, to hear more about that. So that's my last question. What's next for Peter Noseworthy? Well, uh, we've set up a bunch of these trials. We're testing these sorts of algorithms in novel ways, and each one is a slightly different. Um, and then we're also trying to figure out how we can reach beyond the Mayo Clinic patient. So we, we think we have these really valuable technologies, but right now we're offering them only to people who are within our ecosystem. But uh, you know, Mayo has an ambition to reach tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world. And these kinds of digital technologies, I think, can bring value to people at relatively low cost, uh, regardless of where you are. So we're trying to develop uh, new ways to extend Mayo Clinic's reach uh, beyond its walls and its existing uh, uh, capacity. And I think that's going to be an incredibly challenging thing to do, but also uh, very exciting. And we want to try to bring the best of what we know and the best of Mayo Clinic uh, to those, uh, regardless of where they might live. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. This has been the uh, CareCast uh, brought to you by Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit. I hope to see you next time and please take care. And Peter Noseworthy, thank you very much. Thank you, Victor.